0: Hello, this is Daniel from The Particular Baptist Podcast. In this episode, we, Sean and I appear as guests on Irresistible Truth, hosted by Derek Morrell. In this episode, we discuss different verses that could be potential problems for Calvinism or that are difficult to discuss with Calvinism. We hope that you enjoy the episode, and be sure to give Irresistible Truth a like. Follow them on YouTube, Facebook, join their Irresistible Truth discussion group on Facebook, And uh, be sure to like, subscribe, and share to our stuff as well. Enjoy the episode.
1: welcome welcome we have a great show today we have our friends daniel vincent and sean sheatham hopefully i pronounced that right we're going to talk about some now they're both calvinists they're with a particular baptist we're going to talk about some verses that a lot of calvinists struggle with or whether it's you you come into calvinism from from being a non-calvinist or whether you grew up in it so i'm going to go ahead and let these guys introduce themselves so why don't we start with you dan
0: yeah, um, I'm Daniel Vincent. I'm the host of the Particular Baptist podcast. I um, know we posted kind of in the Irresistible Group, his Irresistible Truth group before, but um, I host the podcast, kind of do a lot of the page running and uh, help run our blog. Um, and Sean is co host of our, our podcast. I'll hand it off to him to introduce himself.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm Sean Sheatham. I'm a co host of the Particular Baptist podcast, also contribute to the blog. And, uh, both Dan and I are deacons in our uh, local church. We attend the same church.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So we're going to probably, we're going to go about an hour, maybe hour 15. We don't want to keep this too long. If you have questions that are pertinent to what they're talking about, <laughs> um, feel free to, to, to put them in. We'll try to get to them either during or at the end. I'm just hosting this guys. Um, I'll probably add to some conversation if possible, but we want to go ahead and hand it over to Dan. So again, these are just give a quick background of of why these verses are important to you, or or if you ever had to struggle with them, or or maybe you've, you know a lot of non-Calvinists that struggle with them, or whatever it is. So it's all yours, Dan.
0: Yeah. Um, so the verses I'm going to be focusing on tonight are John three fourteen through sixteen, and paralleling that with Numbers twenty one nine. Um, So it says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, I think verse 16 is used by those um, to speak out against Calvinism, especially as it relates to the extent of the atonement, um, that God, you know, he's loved the entire world, so he gave his uh, Son for the entire world. Um, and I want to talk about why this is a faulty view of the atonement, um, and particularly with regards to the Son of Man being lifted up, um, in, in him paralleling that with Numbers 21 9. Um, and I actually heard this um, from our, our friend, Leighton Flowers. Um, he had tried to use this as a verse to talk about uh, how the atonement is universal. Um, so the assertion essentially is made that. Since the provision was made that God in the wilderness in in Numbers 21.9 presented the snake on a pole to all who were present, Jesus' work must have been for all men since Jesus made this direct comparison to himself. So if you recall in Numbers 21.9, the people of Israel were complaining. You know, they didn't have food. They were hungry. And so God punished them by bringing venomous snakes. And many of them were bitten. Um, And then uh, if they wanted to be healed from uh, these venomous snakes they had to look to the snake up that was raised on a pole and then they were they would be saved through that and Jesus ties that to himself and this is clearly a a, a shadow of Christ's death on the cross um, but the the problem with this view is it really attacks uh, God's justice as it relates to the extent of the atonement. Um, it assumes that the atonement was actually effectual in the sense that the sins of those, People in all the world were actually paid for, even if they would actually reject Christ. Um, Now, the argument goes that in order for the work to be applied to them, they have to believe in Christ. So even though Jesus atoned for their sins, it won't actually be effectual to them directly unless they believe. But nevertheless, Jesus still atones for their sins. So this creates issues as it relates to God's justice. You know, when we're talking about passages in Scripture, we have to take the more clear passages, the explicit passages of Scripture to interpret the less clear. That is a basic hermeneutical principle that we have to uh, employ. So if we want to understand the atonement, we need to go to a place that talks about it explicitly. Romans 3, 25 through 26 is uh, probably one of the most clear places that talks about the purpose of the atonement. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or Uh, Some translations say propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God's justice was poured out on Christ. His justice was satisfied because we have broken God's law. God's law requires death. The book of Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. This is physical and spiritual death. God's law requires that as such for sinning against him. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 explicitly states, and that is tied directly to this uh, atonement that is given in Christ in Romans 3. Um, So if God has paid for the sins of every person that has uh, been born and that will ever be born, regardless of whether they believe in him or not, then how can God be actually just if he's going to punish people who uh, reject him? If he's truly atoned for their sins, yet he still rejects them um, for uh, them not believing the gospel, then how is he a just God? He's still enacting punishment upon them for that which he allegedly atoned for. Um, So this creates, uh, I think, a huge problem for this idea of universal atonement. And I think is, is in grave error. I think it's a dangerous error because um, we're, not, we're not talking about tertiary issues here. We're talking about a gospel issue. We're talking about the cross and the nature of the cross. Um, and I think it's a very dangerous issue, very, very dangerous error to fall into. Um, we see in John 3 later on in verse 18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we can see here that those who reject Christ, they are condemned, and this is not just a, um, you know, just some arbitrary condemnation. This is a, a legal declaration of condemnation because they have broken God's law, they have violated His law, and they are condemned as a result of disobeying God. So, um, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you are condemned under the law of God. Therefore, God could not have paid Jesus. God could not have paid for your sins on the cross; otherwise, His justice is violated. Um, and I know people tried to go to verses like 1 John 2.2, 2. you know, he atoned not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Again, we have to go to passages like this in Romans that lay out clearly what the atonement is, its nature, what is it exactly doing. It is to satisfy the justice of God. It is a just act. This is what theologians have called the passive obedience of Christ. Him um, obeying God in this, in satisfying His law as it relates to the punishment, and then you have His active obedience, which is satisfying the law of God as it relates to His uh, His life. So we have to get these things right, or we're going to have a misunderstanding of the gospel ultimately, because this is uh, going to the heart of the atonement. Um, so those are the verses that I wanted to talk about. Um, I, I think that those are pretty common, at least verse 16, I think is the mo- one of the most common assertions given. Um, you know, people say, well, the, whosoever believes uh, will be saved. Yes, whosoever believes will be saved. That does not therefore follow that uh, those people have been atoned for um, or that somehow their, their sins have been paid for on the cross. Um, that's just not the case at all. Whosoever believes in Christ will be saved. And we believe that those who believe, who will believe are the elect. You will prove yourself to be one of the elect if you truly believe in Jesus Christ. Um, I don't think that's a negation or a, an argument against Calvinism at all. I think it's a poor argument and fails to see the context, not only here, but um, in other places in scripture that speak more clearly on the work of Christ.
1: Yeah, that's good, Dan. Let me, you mind if I ask you a couple of questions now, this isn't staged or anything. I don't, I didn't know what verses they were going to use. Um, we do have some comments, but so have you ever looked, well, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you think since it is a gospel issue, would you say that anyone who has a different interpretation of this is unsaved or do you just think there's a lot of confusion in the ranks, so to speak, that, you know, it it depends on what level someone is or or how would you tackle that? That actually comes up quite often.
0: Yeah. So I, I would say, yes, it is absolutely a gospel issue. However, I think that, um, if there are people who are going to be misunderstood or, or maybe have poor teaching that may believe it out of ignorance. Um, But I don't believe that if you believe, if you hold to this view out of ignorance that you are unsaved necessarily. Um, I know that there are plenty, I know people in our own church who came out of um, that that type of background and are now reformed Baptist Calvinistic. um, Mm -hmm. But that doesn't, I wouldn't say that they weren't saved before I think it's more if if you are doing this in the face of constant correction, and you are belligerent in your teaching and in continuously going down that road in a prideful way and teaching it continuously as if it is truth um, without turning from it. I think there's a good chance you may be um, endangering your soul and certainly endangering the souls of others if uh, if you're teaching a false gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would di- I would be careful to say that they are unsaved. Um, yeah, yeah, I would be very careful to say that.
1: Yeah, and you get a lot of you know John three sixteen was really one of the verses that brought me into Calvinism because you know that's beaten to most people since they're kids and it's a certain way and you know then I found out you know I don't know if you'd study the, the the Greek on this but whosoever believeth is a common common way it's translated in English and you know I'm not quite sure there's an exact Greek part of any manuscript that word for word, or at least it doesn't connote what English, what a lot of people take it for in the English language. I don't know if you ever looked at that before.
0: Um, I've heard of it said as it could be translated as the believing ones or whoever's believing. Um, I think when people read whosoever believes, they th- they tend to think of the first act of believing um, which is okay, but it's also a present tense word, which is talking about someone who continuously is believing in Christ. It's not like they believed at one point and then they can go back to living their own lifestyle. Um, it's a continuous act.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I think it's best. I'm gonna have Sean. I'm gonna have you go, if you have any comments on the John three portion, and then we'll hit a verse from you, and we'll kind of go back and forth with you guys if that sounds good. So, yep. Sean, do you have anything to add on the three sixteen that whole section or Romans or anything?
2: Uh, no, I think I'm good on that
1: front. Okay, well, why don't you dive into one of your verses, and we'll go from there.
2: Yeah, sure. So, just as way of uh, background, because Derek asked that we uh, bring up verses that uh, made us think as Calvinists, essentially. I don't know that there was any verse that seriously made me doubt Calvinism. Um, uh, Since I've become a Calvinist, I've been very certain that that is the truth. Um, Obviously, there are verses that the first time you read them, you're like, wait, how does that fit? And sometimes you are confronted with that. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily something specific to Calvinism. Everybody, unless you just truly aren't thinking about what you're reading, everybody at some point comes across a Bible verse. is like, wait, how does that fit with my theology in X portion or Y portion? Not necessarily about soteriology, but just in general. And uh, because no one reads the Bible the first time it picks up um, every single little detail or understands everything perfectly, that's just going to happen. So I don't necessarily see that as a problem with Calvinism. Um, the verse I'm going to uh, bring up first comes from Ezekiel 18. And then also, there's a similar concept in Ezekiel 33. And again, I don't, uh, to my memory, this didn't really cause me to significantly doubt Calvinism. Although the first time I read it, I was curious, okay, so how does this fit with what I already know to be true? Um, And I know talking with Andrew who couldn't make it tonight, he said that this was probably the hardest verse for him. So uh, we'll, we'll go through it. Um, Just want to give a little bit of the background here Um, starting at, uh, verse 1 of Ezekiel 18 the word of the lord came unto me again saying what mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of israel saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge as i live saith the lord god ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in israel so god is reacting to this proverb that essentially says because the fathers have done something the children are paying the price essentially and we see that clearly if we move on to verse 19 and um, God's God going through and uh, explaining what he means and condemning this idea. so verse 19 yet say ye why does not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right and hath kept all my statutes and hath done them he shall surely live. the soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So, uh, as we can see, he's clearly trying to separate that. just because the father has done something, um, wrong. Doesn't mean the son is going to be punished for that deed. Um, And then uh, verse 21, we'll start to get into uh, the point that synergists like to bring up, the verse that synergists like to bring up. uh, Verse 21, but if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him in his righteousness that he hath done. He shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. So the the last verse there, verse 23 is what's brought up. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Clearly or not clearly, but um, synergists like to say that, well, in Calvinism, God does desire the death of the wicked. Um, He could save them. He has that ability, but he um, he allows them to die. He causes them to die in some sense. So clearly this verse contradicts um, this idea. So just to begin a little bit of response here, but we're going to continue on a little bit. Well, actually, before I begin that, I do want to actually clarify what the dying is here. The dying is not necessarily just physical death as we think of it. Um, it is the eternal death. It's the spiritual death because obviously... He's talking about righteous men living and even righteous men die. Uh, but I think in verse 27, this is actually made very clear. Um, verse 27, again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. So he's, God is making sure that you understand here. He's talking about the soul. He's not talking about just mere physical death. And that's, that's important. Um, so anyway, back to verse 23. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die. And I think it's important here to make a distinction between um, God having any pleasure in the death of the wicked or rather they repent and God desiring the death of the wicked. Now, at this point, I'm sure uh, there are a lot of synergists that are saying, Sean, do you really think there's that much of a distinction between having pleasure in the death of the wicked and desiring the death of the wicked? Uh, But I I would uh, just say, hold on and let me, present my case here because I do think there is a distinction and I do think it's important. And, um, uh, let's see. I just want to quickly, um, go through, uh, Ezekiel 33 verses 11 through 13, just to show that it's making the same point, essentially, uh, say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Um, Therefore thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of thy righteousness shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sitteth. When When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trusts to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered, but for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. So, as you can see, same language again, and even in uh, verse uh, let's see, 32 of uh, Ezekiel 18, it's the same language. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Um, it's always I have no pleasure. It's never I have no desire that the death uh, in the death of the wicked. And. I think from other uh, places in scripture, even the synergist would have to admit that God in some sense does have a desire that the wicked would die even eternally. There's the obvious point that, well, he does cause them to die eternally. So in some sense, he he at least has that desire. Um, But I think even uh, 1 Samuel 2.25 is a good place to look. In this, uh, Phineas the high priest is pleading with his sons to repent Uh, because they've been acting evilly. And he says to them, if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? And then God in the same verse says this, uh, God through the author says this, notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. So this is saying, the reason why they, they didn't listen to their father was because God wanted to slay them. Now, That doesn't mean, just because it says God wanted to slay them, it doesn't mean that he had pleasure in their death. It just is saying that he had a purpose and that he, uh, in that purpose, wanted them to die. Doesn't mean that um, he took pleasure in it, as uh, Ezekiel says. We don't think there's ultimately a contradiction here. Um, Yeah, we don't think there's a contradiction here. Um, And if that's a little bit hard to swallow, I think another example would be very helpful um uh something similar god obviously has takes no pleasure in people's unrighteous death he doesn't take pleasure in people being murdered right i think we could all agree that god would not take pleasure in such an act and yet god does desire the death of certain people we just saw that in first um samuel 2 but even acts chapter 4 verse 27 uh For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So this is saying that God specifically worked things so that Jesus would be put to death. Um, And I know a lot of synergists want to say that this doesn't mean that there's uh, an exhaustive decree of God. And I'm not even necessarily arguing for that in Acts chapter four right now. It's just merely saying that God beforehand determined something to be done. It doesn't say he decreed literally everything, although I would argue that he he does. But uh, the synergist would have to at least agree that God beforehand um, brought about the death of his son. And that was an unrighteous death on the cross. He was perfect. Jesus was perfectly righteous. There's no... um, there's no sin in him, no reason for him to die. And while God, in one sense, certainly didn't take pleasure in the death of his son, he did, in another sense, desire his son to be destroyed. Um, and even a uh, little bit more um, more to the point, Isaiah 53, starting at verse 8, uh, this is obviously a prophecy of the Messiah, He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation for he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So this is actually even you you could almost say that this is, almost seems like more of a contradiction. How could God not be pleased in the death of his son? And yet verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And obviously, I don't think it is a contradiction, but I think it's pleased in a different sense. There's a difference between God taking pleasure in the death of whether it be his righteous son or the death of the wicked and it pleasing God about the results of such, because ultimately I think it pleased the Lord to bruise him because of his, the results of that, not because he desired that his son should suffer just wantonly for no reason at all. And um, before we move on, I do want to address a little bit of a, another topic Um, because I know some people might read Ezekiel 18 and 33 and come away basically legalists uh, because there's a lot of um, if you do righteousness you will surely not die and that might lead someone to the idea that um, they have to do good works in order to be saved and uh, I think um, uh, verse 13 of Ezekiel 33 specifically puts this idea to death Uh, when I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live if he trusts to his own righteousness and commit iniquity all his righteousness shall not be remembered, but for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. So, God is talking to the righteous, he addresses this person as righteous, and says, if you trust in your own righteousness, and you commit iniquity, you're not going to, you're not going to be saved, essentially. Um, so, um, I just presenting the gospel, um, anyone out there that thinks that by their own righteousness, they are made right with God, no, that is not the case. You need to or repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. He was the atoning sacrifice for sin. If you believe in him, you are, your sin is paid for and uh, righteousness is accredited to your account. So you're accounted as righteous. But um, yeah, there's um, you will not be saved in any other way. Trusting in your own righteousness is if that, that, please God, is not uh, the way to go. And then there's the opposite um, error that um, basically... Oh, well, I just completely lost my train of thought there. Um, But uh,
1: I got a question for you. Sure. So you've mentioned the word synergist several times. Can you Mm -hmm. just briefly explain what is a synergist? And obviously that compares to monergist and why is that even important with these discussions?
2: Yeah. So basically a monergist in the, in the Calvinistic sense, there's a, also a monergist in a humanistic sense, um, A monergist is someone that says salvation is all ultimately of God. God brings about salvation entirely of himself, independent of the creature. The synergist um, would say that uh, it's a cooperation effort between God and man. God may even be doing the the lion's share of the work there, but ultimately there is at least part of man uh, that um, is ultimately responsible for their salvation.
1: Cool. Dan, did you have anything to jump on to those passages? That was kind of a lot of a lot of meat there.
0: Yeah, um, I'll note that you know Deshaun's point about different senses of God taking pleasure in um, in the destruction of the wicked, or or even with the, the death of his son. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty eight sixty three says, "And the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you. So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you're entering." You take possession of it. So we see this, you know, it might appear double, uh, I guess, double speaking in the Bible. um, But we have to understand this as there's different senses in which God takes pleasure and he doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Obviously, um, God bringing judgment upon a wicked people is a good and just thing. So in that sense, he's certainly going to take pleasure in it because it's consistent with his nature. God doesn't hate himself. Um, He can't do that. But there's a sense where God doesn't take pleasure in it, where, um, you know, he desires those people uh, to be saved in a very, in a limited sense. Um, and he is a gracious God. And he hmm. is not just capriciously going around wiping people out because he, uh, you know, he's not a joker character. He just takes pleasure in destruction. Um, there is righteousness and justice behind it um, that is consistent with this nature.
1: Yeah, I heard someone ask R.C. Sproul, who passed away not too long ago, I heard someone ask him the same question, and and R.C. says, you know, it's that God doesn't get his jollies off of killing people. He's not a sadistic psychopath that just wants to torture and kill people. That's not the sense, and a a lot of people, I mean, it's 100% in different senses of the words, and, of course, Calvinists love our categories and stuff, but, I mean, you have to (laughs) do that because there's words – in English that mean different things and it's part of part of studying the the scripture here. So why don't you uh, jump in to the next one, Dan? Um,
0: So with regards to, well, actually, I I think I hit all the verses I was going to hit. So yeah. Yeah. Numbers 21, nine was essentially uh, paralleling John three, Jesus parallels um, himself with regards to the snake being on the pole. Um, and that all who look to the snake would be saved from the snake poison. And all those who look to Christ would be saved by looking to him.
1: Got it. Yeah. Okay. Did, um, Sean, do you have any more verses or
2: yeah, I've got at least, well, I've got up to three more. It depends on how many we want to do.
1: Throw we're only 30 minutes into this thing, throw another one in there. And, and for all the, just a side comment for all the, watchers and listeners feel free to ask some questions i know there's a few people asking some stuff there's a few verses getting thrown out there so we'll try to have some time here in a little bit and try to see what we can hit
2: all right so uh i'm gonna go to uh first timothy chapter two and it's verse four that um is normally brought up but i'll start it yeah i'll start at verse one I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now, the typical um, Calvinistic response to this is that the all men being spoken of is more of categories of men than particular, um, or, uh, all individuals exclusively, when it says who will have all men to be saved. Um, or at least that's what I hear typically. Um, and while I actually think that might be true, I don't even necessarily have an issue if the sinner just comes to me and demands that... Um, Verse four must be saying must be talking about all men individually. I don't think it ultimately overturns anything in Calvinism, and it's precisely because of what we were already talking about in the passages in Ezekiel. There is a sense in which God does desire all men to be saved, um, not necessarily in the ultimate sense, but in the in the um, general sense. You could uh, almost call it his um, in his prescriptive sense. Um, getting into a little bit the uh, the distinction between god's prescriptive and decretive wills as we were just talking about in terms of the death of his uh, son or the the death of anyone um god doesn't necessarily uh well he declares in his law that he doesn't want people to be murdered and yet he does bring about murders but those that's those aren't necessarily um contradictory and it's the same thing here God does, in a general sense, ha- desire that all men be saved. Um, and that's sort of where I was going when I lost my uh, train of thought, that um, for the uh, the the person that doesn't want to come to Christ because they think that, oh, God won't save me, I'm so wretched. No, 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 no. It, it's open for you. Uh, God, in a very real sense, does desire that uh, you be saved. So come to him and believe in him and you will find him to be the perfect savior. But... Um, just by way of example, and I don't think I actually copied this out, unfortunately. Um, Genesis 50, uh, 20 um, is um, Joseph talking about the fact that um, uh, his brothers um, sold him into slavery. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Um, So obviously the act that they did was evil and God in his law specifically says, don't sell your brothers into slavery, don't man-steal, um, to use the New Testament uh, term for that. But, uh, and yet God intends this for good. God can at the same time declare something uh, to be evil, but because he does it for different reasons, and he desires it in a sense, uh, he brings it about, and that those aren't necessarily contradictory. So that's how I would ultimately view verse 4 in First Timothy chapter 2. That um, yes, in a very real sense, he does desire all men to be saved, even if he doesn't necessarily bring all men's salvation about. Hmm.
1: That's good, Dan. Any thoughts on that? That's a common that's a common passage we we see often.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I think there's um, unfortunately um, an imposition on the text all, when it talks about making intercession for all men or God desires all men. It's all men without. Um, distinction instead of looking at the categories of men, which Paul explicitly uses in the passage. Um, So we would say it's all types of men without distinction, um, not all individual men without distinction. We have to be careful uh, when we're using categories like that.
1: And I'm going to pull the verse back up and you're just to lay it out here you're getting that from the context, meaning he's talking about types, right? Like for King yeah, verse
0: two for Kings, all their authority. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. And so you're saying by the time he gets to four, he's already has the context of talking about different types. And then by the time you get to four, all men, what does that actually mean? And all men, all of various types. I mean, it's an adequate definition of the word "pos" for all, or it could mean every single person who ever lived. I mean, we're not saying that's not a uh, possible definition, but we're looking at it in the context. So that's Yeah, it.
0: so I think if, yeah, um, because if we start saying that, um, you know, God literally desires all men to be saved in the sense, um, you know, salvifically, then we have issues, then why aren't all men saved? Um, because we know that the Bible talks about, um, clearly, like Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, want to in heaven, there are definite terms that are used in scripture that not all men are going to be saved so if god desires all men to actually be saved and they aren't then we have a contradiction in scripture Um, and our entire epistemology uh, epistemological
1: foundation crumbles yeah now do you notice a lot of times it seems that the people who struggle most with some of these verses these proof texts are people that put these verses in like a vacuum and they look at one verse or maybe they look at a few verses, but, well, you know, we have these universal texts, whosoever believeth all men to be saved. And, you know, second Peter three, nine, we can hit that one if you want. But what are, what does that mean for how you view God? What does it mean for his, his omniscience and the his knowledge of the future and everything like that? Because, Sometimes you have to sit back and, you know, Calvinists might believe in the covenant of redemption, right? You have this Trinitarian agreement, this Trinitarian harmony. And if God really, 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 really desires to save every single person, but why doesn't he? Well, the Holy Spirit only regenerates those who in the non-Calvinist position, those who believe, then they get regenerated. That's where the kind of the synergism comes in. And then what did Christ do? Christ, did he come to die on the cross? When he came to die, did he have the intent to save every single person who has ever lived, is currently living, and is going to be living at that time? Did he have that intent? And if the answer is yes, then you have the whole other issue of all the people that died before Christ even came. So he came with the intent to save people who already died that don't even believe. So you have all of these. These are just more of logical issues with these verses and then, you know, there's verses that tell us otherwise there's there's verses that do, you know, Christ died for sheep, Christ died for his church. And, you know, people will say, well, that doesn't mean he didn't die for his non-church and his non-sheep and you get into all of this stuff. And so maybe you guys mentioned a little bit of that where a lot of times you're coming, you have to come from, or you do come from a framework to understand these verses and you have the framework because of the verses. And so why is it important? Or just give me your thoughts on it. I just, I just want to know kind of your stories on that or why is the whole collective, I mean, it's a big issue. It's a lot of different moving parts. So give some thoughts.
0: Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's important that we we take all of scripture into account. Um, when we're, you know, that that's hermeneutics 101 right there. We have to take the clear passages that, Um, address a certain issue and then use that to interpret the less clear you know like like we talked about with john through 16 by itself that verse may appear um that it's talking about god's universal redemption for all men but you have to go to those passages that talk about the atonement explicitly and paul gives us a clear commentary on that so you know the pieces of the puzzle um, are not necessarily easily put together by just a couple verses um, it's having a, a consistent view of all of Scripture and seeing it as consistent, as harmonious, and making sure that um, we are consistently interpreting. It. And what's interesting with this passage here in, uh, I'm sorry, is it Second Timothy? Yeah. Okay, Second Timothy uh, chapter two. Um, even I would even think that those who would hold to a view that is that this is talking about God literally desiring all men to be saved, I would think they would have to somehow break that down into certain senses in order to be consistent, you know, because I don't think any provisionist or, um, or synergist that is not a universalist is going to say that everybody who, um, who lives is going to be saved, even if God desires them to, um, in a salvific way. So I would even think to be consistent, they would have to somehow break that down into, well, in this sense, it means this, just like we do, uh, which I find kind of, which I would find kind of interesting. So like Judas,
1: um, for instance, was Judas. Yeah. You know, if you find one person, then it, then it isn't hundred percent of all people all times. So right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ultimately, I, I do want to definitely hit that idea home when you're building your theology in it, it, ultimately everybody has a systematic theology, whether they realize it or not, you are putting together different doctrines and seeing um, how they work together. Just some people might be a little bit more clear about that than others. But when you are um, trying to build a systematic theology, be purposeful about it um, and really think, okay, if I have two verses here, I really do want to focus on the one that's addressing it and is clear as opposed to going over here. It's like, well, this might mean that there's a couple different ways this potentially could be interpreted if I'm being honest. So let me let me hold off on that and interpret something that's a little bit more clear before I make a decision about that, because ultimately oh. I do run into synergists and they think they've got that nail in the coffin. They think they've got the one that's going to hit it out of the park and crush me as like, you, you do realize that like you you're, you think it means one thing, but to me, like I don't see it that way. And I really don't see any way, why it has to be interpreted the way you do. Um, and it's, it, I mean, to be honest, it seems like all of their passages are like that, but um, at the very least uh, try and attempt to look at it from a Calvinistic perspective and then see is like, does this verse really defeat Calvinism or is there a legitimate interpretation of this that wouldn't contradict Calvinism?
0: Right. Yeah. I think it goes back to, um, you know, the second London Baptist confession of faith, which Sean and I hold to um, in chapter one, paragraph nine, it says the infallible rule so the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself and therefore when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture which are not many but one it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly so that the principle of you know taking all of scripture must be taken into account when we're looking at these single cherry picked verses we have to look at what other scriptures say about the topic in more clear places
1: yeah, and I also want to add too. We're throwing out some words here, Calvinism. So I, I was one of those. One of you guys were describing it a little bit ago. Who was a Christian before he became a Calvinist? Now, when we say Calvinist, it's not another religion. It's not a competing, competing against Christianity. It starts at the at the smallest point. It starts on an interpretation of soteriology, which is a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. So when we believe in Christ, for instance, well okay, we all believe that we believe in Christ as Christians, but what we're asking in the deeper talk, so to speak, is why did we believe, how did we believe, could we believe on our own, was God involved? That's where you get into that synergism, monergism, and some of those deeper debates. So when we're talking, when I became a Calvinist, I wasn't, I was already a Christian. I'm still a Christian. Some people get really mixed up with that. And so, you know, throughout history, church history, there's a lot of stuff happened. So Calvinism just, became calvinism essentially from the Synod of Dort. you had you had the remonstrance which is basically what if you ever heard of the word Arminian, Arminianism. they brought up five points and then calvin the calvinists back they weren't even called calvinists then they combated that with their five points to answer or to to refute the five points brought against um what was everyone believed or a lot of people believed at the time so I'm not giving a whole history lesson there, but just not to get confused when we throw out words like Calvinism and things like that. I'm going to put second Peter three, nine up on the screen. You guys want to chat about that one a little bit. Sure. Yeah, sure. So this is uh in the ESV I can switch the translations if you want, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. If some, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this is a common, the non-Calvinist, the synergist, this is a common retort against Calvinists. Like, up oh, here's another one. They'll throw out the, the, the first Timothy two and then second Peter three is coming right behind it typically. So one of you guys jump on that and kind of, why is this? Is this universal to every single person head for head that ever lives, shall live, will live? Or is this, Specifically to Christians, or who is this to? So
2: for me, while I'm, well, I ultimately do think First uh, Timothy uh, two four is talking about categories of men, but I'm perfectly willing to accept an idea that it, it might not be. Um, this one I do think is specifically talking about Christians. Again, the same arguments I've already presented. Um, there is a sense in which the, God does desire that um, the wicked would repent. Um, even if he doesn't um, bring that about himself. But um, the, the way I understand this passage is you've got that you there, right? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowest, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all that should reach repentance. So that you, you is really constraining things, right? The, not wishing any any of who? Well, in context, it's any of you. Shouldn't perish, uh, but all should reach repentance. So the question is, who is that you? Um, and if you, you go up just a couple of verses, um, sorry for the little bit of a chain here, but if you go up a couple of verses to Second Peter 3 verse 1, it says, this second epistle beloved, I now write unto you. So uh, he's saying that this is the second epistle, and if we go to the first epistle real quick, um, he he says, uh, First uh, Peter chapter one verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So he explicitly says, the people I'm writing to, you guys are elect. Um, so I would definitely be a little bit more firm in my understanding that um, Peter is addressing Christians and uh, he's making sure that the Christian know, Christians know that, no, uh, if you're elect, God will, um, he wants you to uh, repent and
0: persevere.
1: Yeah. And 100% agree. And Dave, David Lewis is on there. We've done a few, we're doing a series on the, a response to the seven points of provisionism, and he's always saying, Follow the pronouns, follow the pronouns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those perfect cases, I think he probably even brought this one up. But he, the pronouns, he is beloved. Um, when he's talking about you, he goes all through it and he's talking about you. Now, would you say in verse nine, he talks right, right, says beloved right before it? Mm-hmm. Would you say in verse nine that? this is talking about those Christians who he's talking to there, but also future believers, whether they're not even in existence yet or just future believers in general. Would you say that also is part
2: of it? I don't know. Do you want to take this one, Dan?
0: Um, No, no, go ahead. That's fine.
2: Okay. Uh, Yeah. Ultimately uh, it's both. Um, Ultimately God communicates with us by example, um, even though we're far removed from the uh, the time the scriptures were written that um, this is all for us. There's not uh, a portion of it that doesn't apply to us or isn't um, therefore for our example. Um, Bible says all scriptures God breathed and uh, mm-hmm. uh, profitable for correction, rebuke so that the uh, man of righteousness might be complete, uh, for, thoroughly furnished for all good works. I don't think I got that quite right, but the, the sentiment was there. Uh, so uh, even if the just written, to his immediate audience it is also for us at least by way of example but ultimately he did address uh the elect of all those regions so yeah. they may have been elect and not quite saved but through the word of god through the reading of this they very well may have been saved um so yeah i would say it's that it's
1: also bringing up the end the end of the day right and so all the sheep will be gathered i mean this is a this is in the context so the future the sheep not of this fold future people future believers before the last day so i think it's i've never really sure before i was a calvinist i used to think it meant every single person because that's just the way it is but i you know once it was kind of explained and, and broken down verse by verse and context i mean this is an easy one for me just reading it you know, if someone, I feel if someone actually looks at that and honestly goes through the context, I don't see how they can come up with it's to you, to you, to you. And then all of a sudden it's to the founder of Satanism and it's to you to, you know, it just opens up this broad scope just because it, that verse is in a vacuum or something. Mm-hmm. So.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a
1: good one. Do you guys, let's do this. Let's hit some of these questions. We're about 50 minutes mm-hmm. in. Let's see what. Let's see what David said. He's pretty smart. So (laughs) there's an intra-Calvinist debate on the issue of God genuinely desiring the salvation of the non-elect. And they think this verse teaches that. John Piper takes this position. So That doesn't really surprise me. Yeah, there's...
0: (laughs) Piper also believes that, you know, our final justification is by our works, but I would say... uh,
2: I would say that... Uh, God does genuinely desire the salvation of the non-elect in a sense, um, not, not in all senses. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's important because you will get Calvinists that basically deny the free offer of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel being, can you, um, give the gospel, can you preach the gospel to someone who's non-elect, um, Uh, genuinely can you say oh if you believe you will be saved because from their perspective no it it doesn't matter if you would believe because you're not elect you wouldn't be saved and i don't take that position at all Um, i do think that if it were possible for the non-elect to believe they would be saved that um god's offer is open in that regard and that is the sense that you get in ezekiel i don't i don't really see any way around that that no, if the, if the wicked man would turn from his ways, he would be saved. Now, the non elect won't, so there's no threat there. But um, yeah, uh, if it were possible that that offer is genis- genuine, excuse me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have the provisions perspective here. Oh, he's talking about verse nine. He says the word any is the same word in the Greek as some previously, which is about the mockers. So correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, I think it's Drew. He's saying the word any is the same as the word some. So. well, let me, let me turn this
2: right around at you. If you're saying it's the same word as some, would you want it to be translated as some in the second half of that verse? Not wishing that some should perish. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily what you want going there. And it might very well be the same word. I haven't looked at it. I'll
1: I'll take your word for it. But it Uh, still implies what you said, like some of who, some of you. It still doesn't take Yeah, the context hasn't
0: changed at all um, since the beginning of the book. He's still talking to the same audience. The context still remains the same. There might have been some that counted slowness within the congregation, but the congregation Mm -hmm. of Christians is still being addressed in this passage. That doesn't go away.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just because two words are used in the same sentence doesn't necessarily mean they're functioning the Any same words way. Can, they, they Greek, could Greek,
0: Greek and English words can mean different things in different contexts. Just because they have the same underlying Greek word does not mean they mean the same thing everywhere in Scripture. That is a non sequitur.
1: Yeah. Now, is God planning anyone to perish? Here's a comment. That that is God not is planning not planning
0: for anyone to perish. What do so you mean? That- yeah, uh, I I don't without further context, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Are you get, I'm assuming you guys are talking about a decree, God has not decreed that anyone should perish. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's what you're talking about, but feel free to
1: clarify that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was
2: going to say, even even uh, the provisionists, like the provisionist perspective, would say that God's planning for people to perish in the sense that I mean, hell's been created and He knows people will go there, so. I have to imagine that he means decree there.
1: Yeah. And again, a lot of it goes to how, you know, how we view God as far as how he knows the future and stuff, because if someone believes in exhaustive divine foreknowledge or even like Calvinism, I mean, what is there, how is he actively planning if he either, even if he knows everything from the bare minimum, I mean, how, what's he planning for? If he, because he would have known that from the from the very beginning of time, essentially. So.
0: So i see in that. So uh, I don't know if you know this, Derek, but you can actually see the comments from our side too. Uh, um, okay. But I'm seeing they said the word "willing" should be more
1: planning.
2: It's not. Is that
1: in the? Let me see if I can. Oh, here it is. The Lord. The word is "willing" not. should be more planning. Well, in this, in this translation, sure. it's wishing, I think. Right. So basically not, some translations might have willing, so not planning. Not planning that any should,
0: that perish. Any should perish, but that should reach repentance. Well, yeah, obviously, since we believe this is talking about the elect, fair enough, yes. But if you're yeah, talking about true. all men, God is not planning that any should perish, then I guess you're applying that in terms of God's um, God's eternal decree that, Uh, there are no men that perish, which we would obviously disagree with. Hmm. That there are men that God does send to hell as part of his decree. Everything that that will happen, whether um, it's the salvation of the elect or the destruction of the wicked, is is through decree.
1: Very good, yeah. Let's tackle... So I've had... So, Sean, you gave a little synopsis of synergism. There's a couple people... At least two people I saw that didn't care for that definition. Um, oh, okay. So, which is neither here, here nor there, but since I'm posting all his stuff, why call us synergists? So why so, he's a provisionist? So why call provisionists, for example, or non-Calvinist synergists? Are there really any that affirm that label?
2: So believe it or not, provisionist perspective. I am actually trying to be polite there um, because I know <laughs> normally. Normally, just anybody who is the synergist, for lack of a better word, gets labeled with uh, the label Arminian, and I know that's not technically true. So, at some point, I made the conscious decision: well, they are all classified as synergists, so let me just call them synergists as opposed to Arminians, because I have had seen people get angry at being called an Arminian when they're they're really not. So
1: now, if uh, he said if he said synergism, that's just a word Calvinists mm, created mm, to you mm. know. attack non calvinists Would you, I mean, what would you say to that? What
2: would you call
1: the broader, because
2: obviously I could address you as provisionists, but I want to talk about a group that's broader than provisionists. What would you want um, that group to be called? At the moment, I think the best word is synergist, but um, that's, uh, I, I don't know. No, monergism is a made up word. Well, I mean, all words at some point are made up words. Uh, or at least a lot of them. <laughs> um, so I don't like whatever you would want me to call the broader, um, broader camp.
1: What's of- the order? I, I was looking at the order salutis, right? It's that order of salvation, and if your order starts or even has a component where man does his part, because here, here's the thing I've noticed for some reason. Well, I'm not going to sit here and bash provisionists, but I'll just use that as an example. So a lot of them will say they're synergists. A lot of them will say they're monergists. I'm talking the rank and file and some of these debate groups and stuff. Okay, cool. But here's the issue I have with it because for like a provisionist that says they're a monergist, it's almost like, well, God set up these rules we're doing our part and then starting at, starting at belief. Cause we had to believe we had to humble ourselves to believe starting at belief. Then God saves you. And that's hundred percent of God. And so, yeah, we believe it's a hundred percent of God, which, okay. But I think the Calvinist is collectively speaking of from the very first work of God from, from the calling. And we call it an effectual call from all of that. And that work of God, those who he calls he justifies, and so it's all of God. Now, man, does man actually choose? If you're looking around, is you know, did did I choose, and, and ye, these guys choose? Everyone chooses, but there's a difference between why we choose, and did we create that desire on ourselves to choose? And it comes in with grace. And there's a there's a lot of things going on there, but I I really think it, it comes down to the Ordo Salutis.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's kind of funny looking at the comments here. Provisionist uh, perspective said, We have nothing to do with the work of salvation equals monergism. And I, I don't think that's a very, uh, in, in a sense, yes, obviously, because our choice is not of ourselves. It doesn't originate in ourselves because faith is a gift of God. Um, so you're absolutely correct on that. And I would hope that you would agree with that as well, um, unless you believe that, right, you know, faith is somehow. Um, a righteous act that is inherent in us, and that's a discussion we can have for another time. But um, but yeah, I, I think that um, they would be monergists in some sense. But we do believe that there, as you were saying, Derek, there is a sense where we do do something. We are choosing. God is not choosing for us. However, um, because faith is a gift of God, it originates outside of us. It is not inherent in me. Um, to be able to choose that which is good, because I am not able to do that which is good, as Paul lays out clearly in Romans 8 and Romans 3, um, and as is laid out in the Old Testament, which Paul was actually commenting on. uh, We are not able to actually choose that which is good. So while we are doing the act, it does not originate in us. And so we say that it is monergistic because it comes from God himself. That does not mean that our agency is not involved. It is not canceled out um, just because God is the one uh, in the background, working—that's a false assumption. I think that is made from the other side, because yeah. God is God is working. Therefore, our agency must be canceled out. No, we don't believe that at all. Um, and no uh, Orthodox Calvinist or Orthodox Christian that has a consistent view of faith and and uh, God's work in that uh, believes that as well.
1: Well, and you have to add in too. So think at the worldview of when you throw libertarian free will into the mix. So now you're talking this ability to choose. Otherwise you could, you know, all of the libertarian free will stuff. So as a Calvinist, I'm a compatibilist. Most Calvinists are, I'm not saying everyone is, but we are. Okay. You are. Yeah. So concurrent.
0: Yeah. Concurrence. Yeah.
1: Yep. Concurrence. We, we choose what we desire most and all this stuff. Well, we're still free. So most Calvinists still say they're free. Some Calvinists will say we have free will and I'm okay with that. I usually don't use that term just because it's so mixed up, but we do have free will in that sense. But it's not libertarian free will, which is essentially what everyone jumps on. So if you have a libertarian free will and how how can you avoid your... Essentially, you have to judge the decision to make the decision, right? I mean, there, there's a point where... You could say God does a hundred percent, but then if you're arguing libertarian free will, I don't see how that meshes and how that mixes with each other. Even if it's a moment where you have to judge, okay, the the Holy Spirit is working. Even if you believe in prevenient grace or whatever it is, or grace before that that sparks your your internal internal part. So you ha- you still have to choose based off of the options you have. I don't see how a libertarian someone with libertarian free will can escape that. I just, I really don't.
0: Sean, anything you want to add to that?
2: Uh, I did say, see that, uh, provisionist perspective said just other calls are minions and, or provisionists. And, um, there are more than those two categories, which is why I like, uh, synergism, but, um, I mean, no, I, I truly don't mean any disrespect to you guys by uh, calling you that. I just, I, I don't know that I have a very good term to speak broadly about um, everyone.
1: Non-Calvinist, but then everyone's not calvinist yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's not very... Uh... Because no well, one affirms you synergists. <laughs> Provisionist perspective says because no one affirms synergists. Uh, I can think of one person I saw debating in the, the comment section of a YouTube video one time that was calling himself a synergist. Well, I've I don't seen a
1: bunch of people call them. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh. The, well, one that I can think of at least. So uh, I do know of at least one person that affirms synergism, but uh, I will attempt at least to make sure that I label you guys specifically as provisionists in the future, as much as as much as possible.
1: Yeah, but then you'll say provisionist, and then they'll be like, I'm not a provisionist. Yeah,
2: yeah it's it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll spend some time trying to think of something else. But
0: yeah. <laughs> You have to say synergists and then qualify every time you say it. <laughs> yes.
2: Synergists and that subcategory. But we don't mean provisionists, provisionists. And we don't mean these people, and we yeah. don't
0: mean these people. You had to go on down the right. list. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's a whole other topic. I mean, that's a that's an episode in and of itself talking about the Orto Salutis. And I think when I was on your guys' show, we we hit some of that up um, a few months back. It was Sean and uh, Travis that time. So yeah. All right. Well, hey, we're about an hour five into this thing. Why don't we kind of wrap it up? Do you guys have any parting comments or or maybe suggestions for people who are struggling with some of these verses because there is a struggle with verses. my my biggest thing is i want people to to go after the truth Mm -hmm. i'm not a i'm not i don't proselytize for calvinism or anything like that um to be honest when i was a non-calvinist my journey i mean it was like a two-year wrestle with some of these verses because i had my way of thinking on these verses because you're I grew up in the church and stuff. So of course I had all that coming, but I really wrestled with this stuff. I really did. And I was very hostile towards Calvinism at first. And I I was attacking limited atonement, which is one of the five points of Calvinism. And that's what really sucked me into the whole argument. And then I started realizing how everything was connected. And, but, you know, we're talking a two year thing for me. Some people, you know, I, I just don't expect that you're going to have every answer. I don't have every answer or that you're going to read a verse and it's going to be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I see what, what you're talking about. So what would you guys suggest kind of as a parting suggestion to folks?
0: Um, I guess one of, you know, if you're getting into Calvinism for the first time, I would definitely recommend R.C. Sproul. Um, be, not because uh, not only because he's a bright the or was a bright theologian with regards to uh, handling the scriptures, but his take on explaining these difficult truths, he tried to bring it down to a very simple level mm-hmm. and he was very good at it. Um, so I think that his lectures on what is, his book on what is reformed theology is a very helpful book. It's not very long. It's not a big, thick book. It's not like reading, uh, you know, Reformed dogmatics by Herman Bovink for thick volumes. It's very, it's kind of a primer on reformed theology. That's a good place to start. Um, John MacArthur, I think would be a good place to go if you want to, um, to get basic reform theology. We obviously, we disagree with him on, uh, on certain things, but with regards to the core Calvinistic teaching, yes, we, we would agree with him. Um, so he's a good resource to go to.
1: Yeah. MacArthur had a great, early on, he had a sermon it was who chose whom it was on election it was fantastic um you could probably youtube it (laughs) what about you sean what do you got so ultimately
2: i just want to encourage people to read their bible um Mm -hmm. hopefully um i i I hope that we have presented the truth tonight in the, the the bible verses that we've put forward and we've put forward the true interpretation but ultimately Uh, I encourage you to read your Bible because that is God's word. That is the ultimate authority. Um, He has said the truth and he has said uh, things clearly in there for you to understand. So uh, I encourage you to see this for yourself, read your Bible, consider passages against each other. What does it mean? Um, And ultimately that is, uh, that is the best way to grow spiritually. Um, Teachers are helpful. Obviously I never want to say that uh, we shouldn't have teachers or it's just like, just me and my Bible alone. But at the same time, do read your Bible. Don't Just because I said something, don't take my word for it necessarily. Read the scripture, make sure that is what it says.
1: Awesome. And with that, we're going to head out. I'm going to shoot a slow, well, I should say a short outro video here. We have a big debate coming up here in March on baptismal regeneration. So just bear with the ending here. And thank you guys so much. You can hang out for a few more minutes. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. And until next time, have a great weekend.